Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Mystical Motherhood Podcast. This is Chelsea, your host. I hope you had an amazing holiday season and you rested and you created intentions and you're ready for an incredible year in 2024. I have an amazing guest on today named Gina Mundi. And we had a conversation about preparing for childbirth, particularly in a hospital setting. She is an attorney specializing in childbirth cases for the past 20 years. And her focus has been on investigating and analyzing mistakes made during the labor and delivery process. So she's incredibly educated on this. Now, many people would say, oh my gosh, I can't believe that you're including this. This is incredibly fearful. I don't want to know, you know, like what could go wrong. Well, we didn't really focus, really, I don't think the perspective would be on what could go wrong. It's on how to make it go right. And I think that as a, particularly if you're a new mom, or even if you've been, you know, you've had trauma in your childbirth experiences before, or you know anyone who's had a childbirth experience, being educated and prepared for labor and delivery and picking the right practitioner you know, a midwife versus a doctor, asking the right questions, knowing what an induction is and when you need it, knowing how to have pain management options within the hospital setting, preparing for your birth, what kind of center to go to, home birth versus hospital birth. There's a lot of choices and there's not a lot of really good educated guides out there of to what to do. And I wrote my first book, Mystical Motherhood, and included a lot of this information in it, but this is an entirely different perspective. And Gina's 20 years of experience was, you know, it provided like an in-depth understanding of the decision-making process of labor and delivery. And she wrote a book and it's available on Amazon. It's called A Parent's Guide to a Safer Child Book. A childbirth. Again, A Parent's Guide to a Safer Childbirth by Gina Mundi. And it lays out how to prepare for hospital-based birth. And it's, you know, really taken off on Amazon being an Amazon favorite and bestseller. So I think it's everyone's, you know, joy and purpose to have a healthy baby and being involved and prepared and educated is the best thing that you can do. And so we talk about, you know, all the things that you need to think about and consider before you give birth. I'm excited for you to listen to this conversation. I'm excited for all of the different podcasts I'm going to have available for you in 2024 and some solo podcasts, including some more amazing authors, particularly from Sounds True. So I look forward to answering more of your questions. If you do have questions, please DM me on Instagram at Mystical Motherhood or at Pritamatma which is the alias I have written all of my books under, Mystical Motherhood, Alchemy of Becoming, and Fertile are available on Amazon. My newest book will be released in 2024, uh, working with the publisher now. So excited um, for all of you to read that book. Enjoy. If you like this podcast, please leave a five-star review. Leave a little note. Send it to your friends. Share it on social media. There's lots of different guests I have on all the time, and hopefully they're all helpful to all of you. Have a great day. See you soon. Hi. Hi. Nice to meet you. You too. How are you doing, Gina? Good. Real good. You have a super interesting career. 
And it's so funny that we're talking today because I'm pregnant with my third baby. And today I'm going to the hospital to do a tour and I've never had a hospital birth. Oh, and then I, I know. And I was like, amazing that we're going to talk because I, I mean, I worked in the hospital. I was a labor and delivery nurse for many years. And then I saw so many problems and so much and I was like, there's got to be a different way. So that's what started my career as I went in with Ina McGaskin. And I was like, there's got to be something different. And there, so I studied, you know, midwifery and, and different ways of birthing. So I'm so excited to hear how your journey started and your, you know, history and what you've done with your career. Oh, thank you. Yeah. You know, it's, Interesting. I actually, with this field, so I am an attorney specializing in childbirth cases, as you know. So, and just for your audience, because some people are like, what's a childbirth case? Um, So a childbirth case is basically a case. um, It's basically, and it stems from childbirth, obviously, um, when something goes wrong, whether it's a mistake or it's a complication Something goes wrong and baby's not born healthy or sometimes the baby will pass away during childbirth. And then I've had some really sad cases where, um, you know, mom hasn't, mom didn't make it through childbirth. So as the attorney on the case, then I come in and I would talk with the delivery team and whatnot and just find out what happened. Um, And then also kind of figure out, okay, what should have been done? So baby could have been born, you know, healthy or whatnot. Um, so I've been doing this for over um, 20 years. Actually, February, February 2003 was my first case. So this is a, like a field that I just literally stumbled on right after law school. I was just looking for my first job. So they don't teach you about this in law school. Um, I never knew about it. I knew attorneys, but I never knew anybody that was, you know, a, a baby lawyer. Um, so I just stumbled on it. Um, and when I did in February 2003, I had just gotten married so having a baby was on my radar. So I'm like, I got my first case in and I'm like, wait a minute, things go wrong. And then I realized when I was hired in that I was hired as part of a team of over 20 of us. And that's all we did were the baby cases. So, yeah. But I love that you were a labor and delivery nurse because labor and delivery nurses are like my favorite. <laughs> so They're a fun group, usually hardcore. They're fun love it. They never, usually they don't, they don't leave typically. Um, I know. Yeah. Yeah. They stay. Mm -hmm. It's addictive. It's beautiful. It's incredible. You'll never, it's like, there's no other, I I stumbled upon it. I was accidentally hired into it. Actually. I thought I was, it was a total, it was, it was not me. It was God. It was, I walked in and thought it was going to postpartum and they're like hired me out of 500 people. It was a wild, Oh, wow. It was my whole, you know, it changed the trajectory of all the books I've written and all the things I've done because of these moments in time. So just like you, Mm -hmm. you, you, you think it's a, no, I stumbled upon something and then it's where your life takes you. I have so many questions. So most women only, I think it's well less than 1% birth at home, right? I did. And this time I'm not intuitively, I'm just not going to. And so I, I know what the hospital to expect, but what have you seen over the last 20 years that creates this trend of problems happening? Is it gender? I mean, not gender. Is it um, race related? Is it 
economic? Is it located in a specific part of the country? Is it a triage level hospital problem, like one level one, level two, level three? What what is the is it a personnel right. or a doctor so, or midwife? Yeah. So you know what we should also tell your audience. I mean, I'm sure there's an intro that will will precede us or whatnot, but so basically I have written a book called A Parent's Guide to a Safer Childbirth. And basically, instead of getting involved in the aftermath of something going wrong, I'm trying to get involved before childbirth in hopes that we can, you know, prevent these mistakes or complications or whatnot. So that was my whole purpose and reasoning behind, um, you know, writing this book. So chapter 11 of the book is super important because exactly what you just asked me, what are these common issues? What's what's going on? What are what's our common denominator in these cases? Um, because you're right, there's reoccurring issues, reoccurring facts. So chapter 11 goes over the top 10, because I think if parents know this stuff, it'll give them like a heightened sense of awareness um, and, you know, knowing that maybe, you know, they make sure that they're making good decisions, you know, at that moment in time, if they experience any of the, you know, top 10. But um, for instance, uh, the number one most common fact and issue in a legal baby case is Pitocin. Pitocin is in most of my cases. So when I get a new case in the door, the first words I typically read are, mom is being induced with Pitocin. Um, and so, you know, you, you probably, you know this, but different doctors, different nurses, different hospitals, they administer Pitocin differently. So, you know, it's very important that if somebody is undergoing a Pitocin induction, that they have really good understanding of Pitocin um, you know, in order to make sure that these, you know, mistakes or complications don't happen, you know, during the birth of their baby. And for the listeners, what Pitocin is, if you've never had a baby or don't know or had luckily didn't get it, is it's basically it rep, it mimics oxytocin, supposedly, but it's made in a lab. And you are put, you get are given an IV with fluids and pitocin at the same time, and and it's dripped. So they started this, and it's usually created in you know a schedule of when to up it, and when and most hospitals like you to have contractions every two to three minutes. And that's when it gets tricky because some natural births, a baby will come within every five minutes. Some hospitals don't accept that. They want you to have a contraction every two minutes and it becomes too much. The pain becomes too much. The baby gets overstimulated during labor too long. It's in, 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 inevitable that you'll get a, you know, you have to have pain management come in and then it's just one thing after the, the next. And so it really starts with this drug. <laughs> right. Yeah. It really does. And it's almost like a cascade effect. Yes. Um, a lot of times. Cause then it's like, Oh, the, you know, they're up in it, up in it. Contractions now are just so strong. Cause I mean, a lot of the cases moms will start and they'll be like, no, I don't want an epidural. I got this. And then the pit's going up, it's going up. Mom's like, all right, just give me the epidural. You know, she can't handle it. Um, so now you're not moving. Um, and it's just, it's almost like this cascade and it's in most of my cases. And then another, um, common factor, and, and I'm sure you can <laughs> comment on this one, is um, a busy labor and delivery unit. I will sit down with the delivery team and bring up the day, you know, the case or whatnot, and they'll be like, I remember that day. It was really busy that day. 
I have heard that so many times over the last 20 years. Um, but you know, babies, you know, the babies come when babies want to come. I mean, a labor and delivery unit is not like, you know, another part of the hospital, like a surgical center where you have, you know, the hospital can schedule surgeries, um, at, you know, nine, 10, 11, and then they staff accordingly. Um, you know, so babies, so sometimes I've seen a lot of these, um, units just get really, really overwhelmed. So then you have the delivery teams, um, with the labor and delivery nurses, everybody, everyone's just running really hard and fast. And you guys are kind of spread thin sometimes, especially if you're trying to help each other out, depending on what's going on in the unit and whatnot. So it's really important that, you know, I think, you know, parents need to make sure that they're, you know, ready for childbirth because, um, and as something like that, it's really important that, you know, you or your spouse, or if you have a doula, I love doulas, um, private birthing coaches, somebody even that speaks the, the language of the labor and delivery team, um, there to kind of, you know, make sure everybody's, you know, kind of all working together to make sure, you know, mom and baby are, you know, good to go. Yeah. And I, I've noted, I've seen, I don't know if you saw this too, but, you know, obviously like very wealthy hospitals that are known don't have as many issues with this, with the staffing at least, but they have a lot more harder cases, but unions protect hospitals with unions tend to seem to protect the nurses a little bit more, which ultimately maybe protects the patients. But there are some hospitals that, you know, you could have four patients, you could have four or five births in a 12 hour shift. And it's in, it's in, you're barely making it in. And the woman has absolutely no support and you know you're running multiple drips on all these patients and it's frightening it is absolutely like crazy sometimes you're running down the hall to screaming baby at some places and i'm sure you've had that happen so now what do you recommend like if it was you knowing everything that you've been through and seen what would you do like would you birth at home would you do you, do you see cases at home have you ever had a case at home where the woman's died or the babies died because that's what the fear is placed on or they're it's placed on you know the alternative so I would like to hear your opinion on that right so home births are a little bit different I really haven't had too much experience with them now I have had a midwife um, that we've represented that um, it was a separate case but that midwife in particular had also been involved in a previous case where I was not the attorney where you know she had stolen a vacuum from the hospital um, and then obviously used it during birth um, and baby did not make it. So there are, but beyond that, I haven't, because I think home births are, they're a little bit different um, in the, you know, legal world. So um, I'm more of the attorney for um, the hospitals, the doctors, the labor and delivery nurses, the midwives that are actually at the hospital. So those are the cases that I'm assigned. And so what's knowing what you, that next question was knowing what you've seen and the things that can happen, what would you choose? What is the safest way from the 20 years of experience that you've gone through? Because Pitocin sometimes, you know, you don't have a choice at hospitals. They don't give you an option. There's no options. Maybe at a midwifery center, they would say, let's work it out, right? There's more negotiation, I feel, but with doctors, there's not a negotiation. So what do you do? Right. So, you know, I wrote this book for my kids. I have three. 
Um, two of them are daughters. Um, they're, they're growing, you know, they're getting older. So, you know, everything with what would I do? I'm like, what would I tell my kids to do? Because I can tell you as a childbirth attorney, how my kids are prepped for childbirth is a lot different than how like a family will traditionally prepare for childbirth. Um, so yeah, so when I get a question like that, I always think, all right, what would I tell my kids? So, um, basically, um, yes, I do not like Pitocin. I literally wrote it in the book. Pitocin scares the crap out of me because obviously it's in most of my cases. However, like you just said, sometimes it's necessary. And and I'll tell you, doctors, nurses, I am like, I hate Pitocin. I'll just tell them that during a meeting. And they're like, Gina, Pitocin's fine. And I'm like, okay, I've never had a doctor or a nurse hate Pitocin like I don't like, you know, like me. So, so what I did, so because, you know, you're right, unless you're going under like a C-section, which is major surgery, you may need some Pitocin depending on how, what's going on and how you're presenting to the hospital. So basically with Pitocin, I don't know if you're, I assume you're the, I think you're probably the same way, but I'm a slow and steady and hit your sweet spot type of person. Um, now listen, some doctors, some nurses, that's how they practice. Um, but I've also seen where they're like, just up, 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 you know, they keep going and they go too fast. And like you just said earlier in the podcast, they stress out baby. Um, so what I did is, um, in my book on chapter 14, I literally wrote a whole chapter on how to have a safe Pitocin induction. Now I write that, I mean, this is not information that's going to rock the Pitocin world. This is just if I'm going to do a Pitocin or my kids are going to do a Pitocin induction and they choose that, which is fine over a C-section, again, major abdominal surgery, hard recovery risks and whatnot. This is how I want them to do it. And this is what I want them to know about Pitocin. I also don't like Pitocin going over 10. Now, if you look at the drug insert um, on Pitocin, it is very different than how they practice. I mean, even in the Pitocin insert, the drug insert, they're like, they don't even recommend elective um, inductions. So, you know, the, if you look at the drug insert and how they practice, but then also, you know, I should back up. I look at the drug inserts. I look at how everyone practices. I know all the protocols at the hospital for Pitocin. I've studied this drug for over 20 years. Um, and then not only that, I've seen the Pitocin induction gone wrong for, you know, again, 20 years. So that's why I, based upon all of that information, I wrote that chapter. So, you know, I mean, I can go through the chapter, but basically, yes, if the doctor's pushing Pitocin, I basically tell you exactly how to handle it. Um, and you know, what to suggest or what to do, because I think if, People are going to do Pitocin inductions. If my kids have Pitocin inductions, I'm, I'm going to be like, okay, well, remember what's in the book, you know, and then they have their questions. They know about the drug. They understand what the drug is doing to the, their body. Not only that, they're going to understand what the drug is doing to baby. So, you know, I just think, again, preparing for childbirth, getting ready, you know, then you can kind of work with your doctor. Don't, and remember, as you know this, as mom, mom makes the decisions, you know, you guys, I mean, the doctors are more of the, you know, medical advisors. They're like, okay, I'm going to recommend Pitocin. This is how I would like to order it, but it's your body. So if you understand how Pitocin works and how much your body really needs, 
um, you know, it's just going to, it's going to help you have a much safer Pitocin induction, which equals healthy baby. Right. And what Gina is, what Gina and I are speaking about for the listeners is <clears throat> an induction is when you go into the hospital and they induce your labor, you're not in labor yet. And so you usually start with something called a Foley bulb. And once you're up to three centimeters, a Foley bulb can last up to 12 hours. You sleep with it. It, it actually is not so comfortable. It, it seems they're like, oh, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. They put a little tiny bulb inside your cervix to expand it. And once you get to three centimeters, then they'll start the Pitocin in an induction to get you going. So you're putting your body into labor when it's essentially not going into labor for different reasons. Sometimes you can do this electively. So, for example, they even offered it to me. And I thought that was very interesting in midwives. Mm -hmm. They said, oh, it's your third baby. You might not make it in time. Do you want to electively go in? And then even part of me knowing all of this was like, well, then I could have the baby at 39 weeks. And I, you know, I would know when the, and I'm thinking, I even considered it. And I'm thinking, what am I doing? Like, I've had the best labors ever. You know, I go into natural labor. It just happens. I don't need Pitocin and I don't think they'd have to give it to me knowing my history. But it, it, with the way they just, the way they ask you, it sounds enticing. It's like, well, well, then you know what day you can get a babysitter for the other kids and you can plan your life out. But it, it doesn't necessarily end up that way because sometimes the body's not ready and you'll be in labor for like 27 hours. Example, you know, compared to like maybe five if you just went into labor on your own. Now, there's other reasons you go into labor. There's that's a whole other podcast. But induction, you know, for a first time mom with Pitocin can be kind of trauma, particularly um, these particular cases. I'm going to guess a lot of them have to be some first time moms. I don't know if that makes a difference, does it, in your history? They are. Yeah. They are first time moms. You know, I struggled with that one when writing the book because I don't want to. You know, I think it's good information for everybody. Um, but yeah, first-time moms are very common in my cases, for sure. Now, did you see anything with socio in the history of your 20 years, socioeconomic differences? Like, you know, how much and the couples made, education levels, um, color of the skin that ever mattered with these cases? Yeah, I mean, I definitely would think the lower socioeconomic class for sure. Um, and sometimes those are, you know, may also be associated with um, obesity, diabetes and stuff like that. So they have other factors going on, um, too. And then in terms of race, um, you know, there's it's both um, both. But, you know, sometimes it is lower, you know, they maybe people coming from the clinics or whatnot too, because, you know, maybe they, um, they just don't have, you know, maybe a good understanding of childbirth or whatnot, but yeah, definitely the lower, lower class. Right. And it's also, this population is going to be more likely to have gestational diabetes. You know, obesity is a huge, can cause huge problems within labor. And there's just so many, I mean, issues with those things. I have more questions for you. Can so would you have a home birth knowing all of this? Or would you tell your daughters to? Okay, I first of all, that's a hard question for me because mm -hmm. you gotta remember all I've seen 
and dealt with professionally is everything that goes wrong. And again, when it goes wrong, that's a brain damaged baby, baby's passed, or I've had passed, you know, moms have passed away. So given that I cannot unsee what I've seen or unknow what I know, me as a childbirth attorney would unequivocally do a hospital birth. Um, I know if my kids wanted to do a home birth, I would have a very difficult time with that. Um, you know, again, it's just because what I've seen and what I know, I don't, you know, at least with the doctors, they get to see some good stuff and some, you know, other stuff, you know, and bad stuff. I just professionally see, you know, the bad stuff. Now I have gotten, you know, of what I do, I've gotten the calls from labor and delivery and, and whatnot. And those have always turned out great. And those are the kind of stories I try to put in the book. Um, but those aren't professional. I mean, those are just based upon, you know, some knowledge that I've accumulated over the years. Um, but no, I, you know, attorneys are really big into risk assessments and especially, you know, just given what I've seen, I would not, I personally would not do a home birth. And, and another part is, is I couldn't relax enough to do a home birth because you know this, I mean, mom needs to be relaxed to get baby out. I would be so uptight that there was the there's no way the baby would come out of me I would be I'd be frozen so you know it would be it would be very difficult for me um so yeah that's that's probably the best answer I can get and then what about for your children amid choosing a midwife versus a doctor from what you've seen like did you know personalities or what you encountered what would you choose and why and then you know if you want to lead into this question is what kinds of qualities should women look for in their provider or in the, the center that they're, I mean, we can go into the hospital after, but you know, what, what would you look for? Right. When you're saying midwife or hospital-based midwife, I assume. Yeah. Okay. Yes. You know, I have met and represented some amazing midwives and I would be completely comfortable if they were delivering my grandkids. Um, the biggest things midwives is if you are taking that route is just talking to them about, you know, at what point are they going, are they going to get a doctor involved if something's going, is not going right? Or are there, there's concerns? Um, because in the cases involving midwives, they didn't contact the doctor quick enough. They were kind of, so, so just so your audience knows, um, midwives cannot do, um, C-sections. They can't do operative vaginal deliveries. Um, which would be like a vacuum or forceps, they have to get the provider involved to do those. Um, so just making sure that your midwife, if something's concerning, she is really cool with, you know, getting a doctor involved to help out if if needed um, and just not, you know, waiting, not going, I got it, I got it, but then really not having it because those are the, the kind of the cases that involve the midwives. And you know, so same thing with doctors. There's some really great doctors. I mean, that's so midwife versus doctor is hard. I think it depends on the individual person um, and who they are and who you connect with. I think they're both great options. I think it just depends on the individual themselves. So in my book, I have a whole chapter on how to pick a good provider or doctor because I have analyzed OBGYNs for again, for over 20 years as part of my cases, because we have to figure out, you know, are they a good doctor? Can we put them in front of a jury? Who, you know, a lot of times with these cases, 
the doctors have very, very different opinions. Who is a jury going to believe? You know, a jury's going to believe the good doctor. So, you know, we are always const- I'm constantly analyzing OBGYNs, literally to the point where it might be kind of creepy. So, you know, it's very, so I wrote a whole chapter on how to, you know, what, you know, following your instinct, paying attention to communication skills. When we are in these cases, there's about 20 questions that I ask every single doctor that I'm like, why wouldn't a patient want to know this? So I included all 20 questions. Listen, this is what you need to ask your doctor, uh, you know, to make sure that they align with how you think. So me, obviously being me, I wanted a very low risk doctor. I wanted an overly cautious doctor and I got one. Now that might be for some people very invasive, like, no, 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 no. This is my body, my baby. You know, I, you go ahead and make some recommendations, but you know, it's, you know, they may think differently. So no, I have a whole chapter. I think it's chapter four. Um, Yeah. Chapter four is called the good doctor and how to pick one. So and um, that's incredible. Like I was thinking, I, I had a section in in a past book, my very first book, on like questions to ask a pediatrician or questions to ask the doctor. And you and it like I don't think anybody ever thinks of that. I think they look online or they say what's the best doctor, and they go on Facebook, and then they pick based on that, or they pick based on convenience, and then you get kind of lucky whoever's there. And you just sort of pray and you don't ask any questions and you get afraid to ask questions. And then you're in what happens is when I, I mean, when I was watching women in labor, they come in and there's two, there seemed to be two types of women. There was one that would come in with a five page birth plan and Mm -hmm. almost, I'm telling you almost every single one of them had a C-section. I don't know why. And it would just be known. It wasn't created. They would, the more controlling and fearful the couple was, and it was usually the man and the woman and the man was just as fearful. And I would put them more in the neurotic category where like everything, because they were saying like, no, I don't know how it was almost too much, too many no's, too much fear. And it could have just been their energy. It was, we would just say we're, she's going to end up in a C-section because of the way they were. And then there was some that were, you know, in the middle and the middle ones who were able to negotiate and sort of, you know, have good communication skills and ask the right questions and, and talk with the doctors and know how to not attack, you know, were, did great. And then the ones that were very, very, very timid were walked all over. And it really is like a kind of a personality thing. Also where you, I mean, we were living in San Francisco. So a lot of the couples there were these, you know, type A business. I'm, Mm -hmm. I get the best room. I get everything. And it's like, no, you don't in this situation. You have to work with the whole team that's working with you. One of the things I think for anybody, as I'm thinking about, you know, this is one thing you can say if you're at a hospital is you don't allow students in the room. And I think Uh that that, that sounds so silly, but you can say women don't know that is uh-huh. because then you have all these, not only are you having the doctor come in, you're having the nurse come in, but then they're having all these little helpers follow them and the students and volunteers. So you can sometimes have up to nine people in your room and you're like, how did this just happen? And it happens all the time in hospitals and it creates more fear and probably more chaos. And I don't know if you've ever seen that before. But what are some simple things about, you know, writing a birth plan? I'm, you know, skipping from questions to birth plan, but do you have any information in your book on 
whether a birth plan works or can you hand that into the center when you go? Because you don't always know. Some people don't get the same doctor when they are delivering. Right. So I have chapter six and that's how to create the ultimate birth plan. My spin on a birth plan is completely different than anyone else's. Listen, it's more of the act of preparing the plan. It, that's it. It's, it's, it's getting ready for childbirth. So as you know, you know, mom can prepare a plan in the comfort of her own home over a couple of months. She can Google things. She can make phone calls, text messages, do her research, do studies, whatnot. But, you know, it, it's the act of preparing in order to help you make great decisions because if you understand childbirth, you're going to be able to work with your delivery team, make those good decisions. But, you know, it's like anything. You just got to prepare because you don't know what you don't know. So for me, and I and I did like an analogy. I'm like, listen, when I do a cross-examination of like a doctor, like an OBGYN, I will sit for four hours and cross-examine doctors. Now, to get ready for that, I prepare a plan. I prepare a big, huge game plan. And I know what questions to ask, issues, and whatever. Before I go into the cross-examination, I look at it three times. I That's it. I put it down, and it's go time. But that way, I can pivot. I can make decisions and whatnot. So I don't sit and read my questions or anything like that. But similar to somebody who's going, you know, into a labor and delivery unit, if you want to give them the birth plan, sure. That's great. It would probably help with some communication. In my chapter, I'm like, birth? Yeah, don't expect. <laughs> there, you cannot really plan this, okay? It was my whole thing. So get ready to pivot. Get ready to make different decisions um, and whatnot. So, yeah, the birth, my birth plan is a whole different thing. So if they want to give the birth plan, that's great. If you just get it ready and prepare, you have it in your head, you know what you want. If you have, you know, your husband should have a good idea of what it is. So you guys are on the same page. If you have a baby advocate, if you have a doula, a birth coach, they should also have an understanding of what you, you know, what you want. But yeah, be ready to pivot and um, make different decisions. That's kind of the basis of, you know, of, of my chapter on it. And I feel like this is the most important kind of point of the podcast is you can't, you, it's better to be informed and educated and understand what really happens in a hospital and all the options rather than sort of entering it. Um, Cause a lot of people will be like, Oh, I'm afraid of this podcast or I'm afraid of reading this book. I don't want to know what's happened, all the bad things or all the good things. I just, I just want to go in and have them take care of me. But what, what Gina is saying is it's really, really good to be an informed and educated patient so that when you come in, you're you're that neutral patient. You're not too controlling and you're not too timid and kind of stupid, but you can have these educated conversations. I mean, it's hard when you're in labor, but if you can bring your partner or, you know, have a really good doula, not some doulas are not so good. You have to really have a doula that's done a lot of births. So that's very important if you hire one. Make sure she knows what she's doing. Make sure maybe she's been a previous labor and delivery nurse. And so she can negotiate and knows how it's a negotiation. And 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 it's not to be based on fear. So when you're in the hospital, sometimes you get into these cold rooms with all the lights on and you're in this hospital gown, you feel very vulnerable, and you have all these people telling you, and they 
And you, because you're in labor, it comes off fearful, but it it isn't necessarily. It may be like we could do this next. Sometimes if it, you know, it, it's a, a move that they have to do quickly, they will do it quickly. They have to. And you'll know the difference. But having somebody there, a partner that's educated is also it's it's important so that you feel okay I made the right decision and you don't ever go back and say I regret that or did I do the right thing um which leads me into a question about even like I had a I had a friend that went into the hospital was her third baby and I mean this is about electronic fetal monitoring I want to know your opinion on it what you've seen in cases and you know its efficacy which is a lot of times I've heard, you know, is it, does it work? Is it the right thing? Does it work in cases? You know, um, she, they said that she had a placental abruption, third baby, healthy mom, no, no problems, right? They they couldn't find the baby's heartbeat. But then they kind of didn't show her the placenta later. They didn't really, like, she didn't really have any proof she really had a placental abruption. She went in, into labor in the hospital to just check the baby's heartbeat. They couldn't find the heartbeat, you know, as she's waiting in the triage. And they immediately brought in all these nurses, rushed in, said they couldn't find it. So they brushed her back, had an emergency C-section. She didn't even get a chance. Now, this didn't really make a lot of sense for my friend. She is a nurse practitioner, educated, um, didn't have any health issues, none, third baby. would It didn't make any, it didn't make any sense, right? She didn't, not the type to sue, not the type to look into it. She just said, okay, I had to have a C-section. She's always wondered, though. Tell me about your opinion on electronic fetal monitoring and what you've seen. Oh, I will, but have your friend just get a, there should be a placental pathology report and I'll tell right on there if there was one. I know. I got to ask her if she ever got that. I told her to get one. Yeah. You just get the report because the pathologist, it, it has to go to, it better be going to pathology. Um, yeah, I have to, to ask so her. So the, the pathologist will tell you if there was one or not. That's okay. completely separate than the OBs or the doctors who delivered. They're usually in the basement somewhere of the hospital hanging out. Uh, my point, yes, fetal monitoring. Um, it is a huge part of my cases. As, as a baby lawyer, it was one of the first things that I learned how to do. Um, there are two chapters in my book on fetal monitoring. Chapter eight are the three different types of fetal monitors. And then chapter nine goes through what I think every parent should know about, um, you know, their baby's heart rate. And it does have to do with interpretation of the fetal monitor. I mean, I've had doctors testify that the only way a baby can talk to them is, you know, through their heart rate, because obviously baby's inside of mom. So it's hard to figure out exactly, you know, how baby's doing, looking at the baby's environment. And by far, I believe the best way to do that is fetal monitoring. Now you have to know your different monitors. I mean, I would have, I'm like with your friend, if they just did an external monitor and, but they didn't like, they should have brought in a, a big ultrasound, wheeled that in and then really put the ultrasound on to figure out if the baby had a heart rate or not. Um, so but with the different types, I go over them. Um, there's the wireless, the Monica. Did you ever use that or was that before you? You used that one? No, I didn't use that. They didn't use that. Yeah. So that's a very um, new type of monitoring and it's really Bluetooth. And it's really great um, for some patients that are low risk because they can walk around. They can walk 100 feet from their bed. 
um, and still be able to like to check on baby and see how baby's doing. Um, and then, yeah, there's the other, there's internal, um, and whatnot, but as to, um, the reliability of the heart rate. Yeah. I mean, I, I can, when I get my cases in the very first thing I do is look at the baby's heart rate. And I can tell you if the baby is a rock star and I can tell you if the baby is in big trouble. So, and when they're born, and I know you guys have a different experience with this, um, you know, in my cases, the strips are usually pretty bad at the end. And that's why there's a case. And, you know, the allegation is always they didn't deliver baby in time. Um, but those strips at the end of the cases are usually, you know, there, there's definitely some big time, you know, depending on the case, you know, there'll be some concerns about the baby's heart rate, even, you know, whatever that may be. But I do think it's a great indication on how the baby is doing. And, um, I know for my kids, I'll be like, nope, we're going to keep the fetal monitor on. Um, so that's, that's what I think. I don't, I know you're, you sound like you may think differently or. What I was asking is, is I don't even, I don't even have the argument because it was so many years ago of it's intermittent monitoring versus, you know, consistent monitoring and different, different arguments of, you know, is it as, I mean, I definitely think when Pitocin, when they put Pitocin on, they, they always monitor but before that, when you're just in intermittent labor, you know, in the big when you first get in and you're not being induced, sometimes they don't use the monitor. But I was just curious. I mean, I know it has to be a part of your cases. And mm-hmm. yeah, so um, there have been cases. Um, and again, this is all in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do have a section on intermittent versus continuous. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a situation, you know, there was a case where mom wanted intermittent monitoring. It was more of a natural birthing center and she was low risk, no big deal, but something did happen and they didn't know. So right, I'm, some- I, I would be, I'd be more apt again. I'm different. Um, given, you know, what I've seen and I know, but I would be 100% with my kids, you know, continuous monitoring, whether they were low risk or not, even right. if they wanted to use. Now I'll tell you, I'm not a fan of the Monica. Um, that wireless one I was just talking about, there's a lot of cases in Michigan right now where, um, involving the Monica, um, because if something does happen to the baby inside that Monica is Bluetooth technology. And a lot of times it just drops the baby's heart rate. So whereas maybe, um, an internal monitor would show that the baby's heart rate is dropping or baby's not doing great. Um, you know, the Monica just kind of drops it, which then, Nobody knows the baby's in trouble. And then they start this troubleshooting with the Monica. Mm-hmm. And then as they're troubleshooting, baby's in trouble, nobody knows. And, and I'll tell you, in every single one of those cases, it took so long to deliver baby that the baby, in every case, has passed away eventually. Yeah. So what Gina is saying for those of listening is there's the external fetal monitor, which can kind of move around on your belly. If you move positions, it it's a little bit, but it's best if you know, you're in early labor. And then when your bag breaks and your baby starts to move down, an internal monitor, if 
it, it usually happens mostly when you actually have an epidural. If you're, but most patients who go to the hospital get Pitocin and have an epidural. And then if your bag breaks, they can put an internal monitor in very easily. It's it's very safe. It doesn't hurt the baby. It's super it's super easy to put on. And it comes off very easily, just goes right in the hair of the scalp. And then the Monaco, I'm not familiar with, but I do know that if you lose one or two or three minutes trying to find the baby's heart rate, you just lost three minutes. And yep. so it's those minutes that count and it's human error that creates every single minute and second counts. And even getting to the room counts and then calling the next people to come into the room. So it's like, that's why I, you know, the new technology I can see would be super scary. They're basically testing it out on you to right. see if it works. And then they're just being sold by a, a company that wants to make a lot of money. And they're like excited because it sells their it's all kind of like a moneymaker in, in, in the beginning until you know it works and it has efficacy. So I can see. Right. And you know what you just said is so unbelievably important because in my cases, these families are one decision or minutes, minutes from a healthy baby. And it is so devastating because they're like these close calls. And I'm sure you've had, you know, you've seen those close calls and it's, you know, always trying to land on the right side of a close call. But a lot of these cases, they land on the wrong side of a close call and it's like minutes. It's so, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. And when I worked as a labor and delivery nurse, I was very different, which is also why my career even changed. But I never, if I, I got to work at UCSF, which was an incredible hospital, really good center at the time. I'm sure, sure they have their own cases because they also have cancer patients and they have all kinds of very, the most complicated in the nation. But I wouldn't leave my patient's side. And I mean, I would sit there if they're sleeping, I would just sit there with them because things, unless they were so happy, but other the other nurses would just sit at the front desk. And so you, it's like, it really does kind of matter how much you call your nurse and asking her to come in and asking to trade if it doesn't work and being an advocate because that nurse, that's your main person. And then the doctor, there's what it is, is typically there's a team of nurses and there's a few doctors typically at most centers. And then the few doctors are monitoring, let's say 12 beds. And you have like a nurse, one nurse has one or two patients at a great center. That's ideal. And usually it should be one-to-one, -one, but that nurse should become the doula. So you don't even need a doula. And I think that would change all of this. I don't know if you think so, but it, it's the nurses that sit at the front desk because there's that two or three minutes of getting in the room of like, oh, I didn't notice. And then you have another two or three minutes and every single, oh, it's horrible. It just. Right. Yeah. So yeah. You know, that strip is good. Looking at your strip is okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think just having a basic understanding is because I, listen, reading a baby's heart rate is not rocket science. I mean, I'm a non-medical person and I literally it took me an hour to figure out, it, you know, while I've analyzed them, you know, over the years, I don't, I mean, I've analyzed them, but not much has changed from that first hour I spent learning about it. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, really focused on kind of just putting the basics in. And then also if you understand the heart rate a little bit, if your doctor or nurse is telling you something about it while you guys are trying to make decisions, you know. So you, you this is then get right to the point. Like streamlined communication, I think is you know huge. But also, you know, I have I wrote you're I love talking to you because I I feel like you you say something I'm like that's in my book. But I have um, the whole uh, chapter three is about the delivery team um, because in my cases it's the delivery team's care that's at issue. I mean, it is analyzed 
more than any other aspect of the case. I mean, the case is their care. So your delivery team is huge and responsible for helping to bring your baby safely into this world. So I do go over like different types of, you know, delivery teams, like, you know, like your dream team, you know, you have a great nurse, everything's great because your nurse is so important. It's unbelievable, like so important. And if you don't like your nurse or maybe there's a resident or somebody else, it's so important also to be able to say something and know that you can switch them out really quick. I even wrote in the book an example of I had a case and there were two nurses in this case. And the first nurse was a born to be labor and delivery um, nurse. She was 20 years deep. She just loved her job. The other nurse just got out of training, hated the job, was trying to find a new job. So. Um, the case really obviously centered around the care of the, you know, not so experienced nurse. Um, but you know, that day when the patients came into the hospital, it was like just luck of the draw on who got which nurse. Now the dream nurse was only involved in the case because she was trying to help the inexperienced nurse. Um, you know, cause that's what, you know, a lot of the hospitals, they do, the nurses are great and they'll help each other out. Um, so if that patient, though, in the case who had an inexperienced nurse would have said, hey, I would like a new nurse or can I swap my nurse out? You know, everybody, all the other nurses on the floor already know that she hates her job. She's inexperienced and, and they'd, they'd be like, oh, 100%, you know, and they'll swap them out real quick. Um so, yeah, no, I go. And then, you know, another thing that everyone has to realize is that, you know, maybe with the exception of your doctor, you know, whoever is delivering you that day, it's really who's scheduled to work that day. So it's, you know, that's another important part. I think people forget. So being ready to communicate, I do do, you know, the whole communication thing, like, listen, you guys all got to work together to help deliver, you know, baby safely. So having good communication with your delivery team is huge. But yeah, just I have a whole section on the whole delivery team. So, And going on what Gina just said, it also looking at a hospital center, some people may be afraid to go to a big center like NYU or UCSF or these big known centers. And I don't know if there's a name for it, but some of these really good centers, they only hire master's prepared nurses or nurse practitioners. And so if you have an entire, I mean, it's, it makes all the world in the difference with, I mean, it makes a lot of difference in your experience having a master's prepared nurse versus a nurse that's gone to school is just kind of flailing and doesn't know what she's doing. And you can tell the difference and the things to look for are, I mean, it's as basic as, you know, how much is she coming into your room? How much is she caring? Um, does she walk away how present is she? The presence is really, really matters. Is she annoyed with you? Is she acting um, frustrated when you call her? It does, does, I don't know. Does she check on you without you asking her to, you know, they're like you, some of them will say, take the call button and then you don't see them again. And it's, it's, con- <laughs> yeah. it's unbelievable. It's like, you're in there. You don't know what's going on. In particular, if you're having an induction, she 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 should be coming in every in my opinion every 20 minutes and and but or asking you do you need some time alone right now to rest or you know i don't know so it's all important you can i don't know if do you ever take private client clients Sheena, to or do you only take cases oh i just take cases you take cases yeah i mean and you know after writing this book and whatnot i've <laughs> my number 
is out there <laughs> to a lot of pregnant people right now who maybe who are going to call me if they have any issues in labor and delivery. So I'm like, well, maybe that's a different job. Um, right. You know, more like consulting or something like that. And I've always had that with my friends and family. I mean, even in my book, um, there's a story about a girl in there and she was trying to make a decision and she got referred over to me. So, you know, I, it was so beyond the family friends, I've never done this, but now there's um, with me going on podcast, meeting different people, there's different, you know, people who now have my number, I'm not charging them, but I'm like, Hey, if you really need me or, you know, almost to keep them calm yeah. as like, they do have that phone, a friend for help. Um, but if they know that sometimes I think it, it helps them just stay relaxed. Mm-hmm. So and that's so important during uh, childbirth. Um, tell the last kind of question I had is I saw learning more about you before we go around this podcast is how did you do your book? You said your book was like a number, like did very well on Amazon. What was your secret? Oh, um, I think it's just that it just has different information in it that is getting out there to people and it's just going, 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 you know, I was on Instagram last night, just right before bed, scrolling through it and not kidding you. I see my book. It's a, it's in a video. It's my book. And, um, somebody had nominated it or made it the birth essential book of January and they were giving away five copies. And I'm like, oh, and then, you know, they, they wrote why people needed to buy my book, but it's just stuff like that, yeah. that I think, you know, it is really good information that is going to help families deliver, you know, have a healthy baby and people in their kind nature, I do believe, especially when it comes to moms and babies want to help. So it just kind of organically, I mean, it, it took three months. So I released it in June and then it was September. It hit bestseller. But it was just, it was, I think it's the kind people in this world that just want to make sure that people are having healthy babies. Uh, not, not so much me individually. <laughs> right. And nobody talks about this kind of stuff because usually it, like right when I saw you, I was like, oh, this is stuff, that, this is information that people need to know. And I'm not about fear versus, you know, it's like people, a lot of people don't want to know the worst case scenario. They don't want to know these things and you have to let that all go just to not be stupid, you know, to, to know like this is what can happen. And this is, these are my different options. And, and it's, it's also intuition of, yes, it's a lot of intuition. And I mean, that's one of the biggest questions I've ever gotten in my life is like, how do you tap into your intuition, which is a whole nother podcast, but it's really knowing yourself and knowing that the first thing you think and the first knowing is really usually the answer. So as you're mm-hmm. going to, through this, pick up the book, read these chapters, get prepared, know the questions, everything we talked about. And, right. and all the answers are in your book. Literally. I, I tried to make, you know, I gave my book to six pregnant beta readers before it was published. And my number one question was, is my book scary and they were like, all of them read it. And they were like, absolutely not. This is amazing. So it took me 14 months to write my book and thousands of hours. I got up at 3 a.m. every single day. Um, to this day, I still get up at 3. I got up at 3 this morning. So I haven't really stopped. Um, but my point is, um, I did. I tried really, really hard to get this information more in like preventative so what I know is in my head is still there. 
But this is, my focus was making sure that this didn't happen. So it's more preventative. Like, you need to know this or you need to know that. There are a very few very general case, case, you know, cases that, you know, this is why it's important that you know this information. But otherwise, it's very objective. Um, I tried to keep it almost like a timeless book, too. Like, just if this is what you know and this is what you understand before childbirth, you're going to be okay and you're going to be able to make those good decisions. How can people find you, find your book, find your Instagram? So um, GinaMundy.com is the best way. That's everything's on there. So, or even if you Google Gina Mundy, you know, Gina Mundy, everything comes up now, but it's G-I-N-A and then M-U-N-D-Y. My book is on the best places, Amazon right now. Um, We're expanding, but, um, you know, I'm still a practicing attorney (laughs) <laughs> the author and all this memory. I told you to get up at 3 a.m. So we're trying to, that's the goal right now is to expand it. But right now the best place is Amazon. Um, and then Instagram is at Gina Mundy. Great. It was nice to meet you. Thank you for this incredible conversation and all this valuable information. And I will post everything in the notes of how you can get a hold of, or not get a hold of Gina, <laughs> but read her book. Are you going to labor? This is her phone number. <laughs> <laughs> phone number if you're in labor. She's come and be your doula. <laughs> it was so nice well, to meet you. Thank you for having me. It was a great conversation today.